Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 412 of the Colombia Calling podcast. We've been having some great interviews so far in 2022. Last week's with uh, journalist and author Joan Grillo up there in Mexico discussing the war on drugs, of course, uh, the arms trafficking and how this all plays into Colombia and the politics and so on down here. Uh, before that, Emily Hart taking the reins and interviewing the literary translator, renowned Frank Wynn. There were some great moments for humor in that one where he talked and discussed about translating the literature of cult author from Cali, Andres Caicedo. So check out that work. And before that, uh, Maria Fernanda Olarte from, uh, took, uh, well, joined us from Vienna and took uh, an ethnographical and sociological look at um, well, forensic science in Colombia in the context of the armed conflict. Quite shocking, but very informative. This week's guest is Juan Papier. He is the senior investigator for the Americas for Human Rights Watch. And we'll be discussing, well, one of the most pressing issues that's uh, uh, here today for those who are watching Colombia. It's the need for a comprehensive police reform. And of course, the protests or the hashtag Paro Nacional, which took place in 2021, an extension of the demonstrations from previous years uh, under the administration of President Ivan Duque. Well, yes, the police reform is something that keeps coming up. The police here are under the control and the auspices of the Ministry of Defense. And so they are treated like a part of the defense uh, establishment. And so we talk about this with uh, Juan Papier and, of course, what's going on regarding the court cases for those members of the police uh, presumed or investigated or being accused of killing protesters during the uh, demonstrations last year. So very interesting with Juan. And this goes into our series of course, the protests in Colombia series, which we had with Sergio Guzman, uh, obviously Elizabeth Dixonson from uh, Crisis Group, Sergio Guzman, Colombia Risk Analysis, and others. We had Adrian Alsimer talking about the press during the protests. So a little bit, this is just, just another follow-up on that sort of kind of series. So keep on listening. Emily Hart will be over with the news, and then we're back speaking to Juan Papier of Human Rights Watch. Thank you again. Don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top news stories for the week of February 14th, 2022. As tensions between Russia and NATO escalate, Colombia's own relationship with Russia continues to deteriorate. As many as 130,000 Russian troops are now positioned within reach of Ukraine's borders, a threat taken seriously given Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine. Russia is demanding an end to eastward expansion by NATO and an end to their military activity in Eastern Europe. President Ivan Duque, currently touring Europe, has announced that Colombia rejects any intimidation of Ukraine. Specifically, Russia is demanding guarantees that Ukraine will not join NATO, an alliance of 30 countries, of which Colombia became the first Latin American country to become a partner in 2017. 
Duque visited NATO this week, where the Secretary-General thanked him for their strong partnership and contribution in building international peace and stability. Duque has said that Colombia's role in the unfolding situation in Europe will depend on what NATO decides. In the meantime, the Colombian embassy in Poland has established ongoing contact with the 32 Colombians living in Ukraine in case of a need for evacuation. Since 2020, the deterioration of the relationship between Russia and Colombia has come to a head in episodes such as the expulsion from Colombia of two Russian diplomats suspected of being spies, as well as unauthorised Russian flights over Colombian airspace and, most recently, allegations by Defence Minister Diego Molano that Venezuela was moving troops to the border with Russian support and technical force. Molano has also suggested that Russia's military aid to Venezuela could be ending up in the hands of dissident FARC militants and other Colombian guerrilla groups present in the country. President Duque's tour of Europe continues, with a focus on the policy of peace with legality, vaccines and his environmental agenda. Meanwhile, in Colombia, the European Union has begun its election observation mission, with the deployment of 34 observers who will go to all regions of the country to evaluate the elections. Studying the electoral framework, the electoral role, the registration of candidates and the administration of the elections themselves. Last week, Colombia's own mission published findings on the upcoming March legislative election, warning that there is a risk of fraud or violence in 131 municipalities. 49 municipalities are considered at extreme risk, many of which are in the departments of Antioquia, Choco and Norte de Santander. At least one of every 10 municipalities in Colombia faces some level of electoral risk. Meanwhile, the son of one of Colombia's most notorious paramilitary commanders, alias Jorge Cuarenta, holds firm in his candidacy for Congress, which he plans to reach through the peace seats, congressional seats reserved for victims of conflict. Some weeks ago, a complaint was lodged with the National Electoral Council to revoke the registration of Jorge Rodrigo Tovar. However, the decision was made to endorse his candidacy, which has strong political backing in the department of Cesar. Tovar has said that he does consider himself a victim of conflict. The constituency for which Tovar is running is made up of many of the same municipalities where his father commanded the northern bloc of the AUC paramilitary group. Following demobilization, Jorge Cuarenta was extradited to the USA and detained there for 12 years for drug trafficking offences, before being returned to Colombia in 2020. He was then detained by national authorities, facing more than 1,000 investigative procedures, including for massacres, rape, torture, forced displacement and disappearances. Last Wednesday, 9th of February, was Day of the Journalist here in Colombia, and the FLIP, Colombia's foundation for the freedom of the press, released its latest figures for attacks on journalists. The FLIP reported 684 violations of press freedom in 2021, affecting 769 victims. In 2020, there were only 449 violations. One in three attacks against the press in 2021 were perpetrated by members of the Colombian state security forces. And following torrential rain, a landslide between the municipalities of Dos Quebradas and Pereira in the department of Risaralda killed 16 people, with more than 30 injured and three still missing. More than 60 homes were affected. And the fourth peak of coronavirus continues to wane. New daily cases are now at around 5,500, down from 30,000 in mid-January. 80% of Colombians have now had at least one dose of vaccine. Around 65 are fully vaccinated and more than 10% have had a booster injection. Those were your top stories for this week. Thanks for listening.
We're back. This is episode 412 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall here in Bogota, Colombia. My very special guest this week is Juan Papier. He is, well, he's a senior investigator for the Americas, a special uh, for Human Rights Watch. That's right, Human Rights Watch. Uh, he's got a special focus on Cuba and Colombia. So we've got him on at the moment because he's been writing some interesting documents about Colombia. And of course, this is all Colombia related. Uh, Juan, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Columbia Calling podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's really nice to be here. It's 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 great. I mean, you're Argentine, and you, you know, but you're focusing on Latin America, and of course, you feel, I suppose, you feel a, a, a real proximity to what's going on in in this region. I mean, did you grow up under the sort of let's say the shadows of the the what they call the madres of the of, of the plaza, the, the abuelas, and and everything in Argentina that that went took place? I did. Yes, yes. In many ways, I I grew up under their under their shadow and you know human rights is a big of a of a big uh, big issue in in Argentina in our in our in the way we grow up in the way we think and that has obviously influenced my career and then i i discovered colombia and the problems are so different and i i immediately fell in love with the with the human rights issues in colombia uh, in many ways it's true. just an amazing thing uh, and and there are so many issues to be addressed, and of course, as you said, very different. The Corno Sur is very different, but equally so, you're coming with a knowledge of the region, and and that of course helps immensely, I think. And uh, um, well, I you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, Juan, from the perspective, your perspective, and of course, Human Rights Watch, and we get uh, great statements by uh, 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 Miguel Vivanco. Uh, you know, he makes mm -hmm. great statements. And of course, uh, he's been up against this government and previous governments in, in Colombia. But uh, and we know about the report last year showing that uh, the Human Rights Watch report saying the egregious use of force by the police force here in Colombia during the protests. So let's start with the 2021 protests, the Paro Nacional that took place and really Really, I mean, the epicenter for so long was Cali, but of course there was Bogota, there was Medellin, and other places. What is what is your take on all of this uh, of these protests? Where do we stand now in 2022? Look, our main uh, focus with regards to the protests from the stand view of Human Rights Watch um, was to know exactly how the security forces were reacting. Mm. And we conducted more than 170 interviews. We visited many places in Colombia. We had access to the criminal files. Um, we interviewed the prosecutors, uh, a whole range of actors. And our conclusion was, I think, pretty clear. The police constantly, repeatedly dispersed the peaceful demonstrators with excessive, with brutal force. We have we gathered direct evidence, first-hand evidence, linking the police to 25 killings of protesters or bystanders, dozens of cases of uh, protesters beaten, including in one case a protester was beaten to death, hundreds of arbitrary detentions, and even some cases of sexual violence by police officers against demonstrators. So I think that the overall image is pretty bleak. And right now our priorities are, on the one hand, we need justice for these human rights violations. And on the other hand, we need a serious police reform that ensures that this will not happen again. We need to make sure that the government addresses some structural problems in the national police that enabled these abuses in Colombia. Uh, you you you're recording that the 25 uh, killings at the hands of the police, bystanders, protesters, but the the real figure is probably higher, right? The real figure of uh, people or protesters that died is is probably higher. We have evidence that these cases were committed by police officers. Then you know there was sort all sorts of violence surrounding the demonstrations. 
in some specific cases, violence by demonstrators, in other cases, violence by people who were against the demonstrators, as we saw very clearly in Cali. And then some incidents of violence occurring on the side of the demonstrators, including, for example, in Cali, gangs mm. who used the, the national strike, used the protests to distract the attention and seize the opportunity to move their, what are called in Colombia, invisible borders. So the, the borders that they control in a neighborhood, they use the pandemic, the, I'm sorry, they use the protest to move their invisible borders, uh, to commit some killings on the side of the demonstration, profiting from the fact that the, the protest was such a big distraction for many. So the number of, total number of uh, people killed is much higher, but we have evidence linking the police to these 25 cases. Mm, okay. That's really interesting. And I was talking to friends of mine in Cali and they said there is a definite, there's a definite gang uh, organization going on. You know, so you have the legitimate paro, the legitimate strike, and of course the, the minga indígena as well coming up and, and, and everyone striking on that. But uh, as you said, moving the invisible borders for the gangs. So these are like uh, criminal gangs, drug trafficking gra- gangs. And are they moving the, their invisible borders to claim more territory as well? Is that what was happening? Yes, that's part of what we saw, in, especially in this very uh, underprivileged neighborhoods in, in Cali. Mm. The whole dynamics of organized crime and armed groups during the national strike is pretty complicated. And unfortunately, what we saw from the government is that they just oversimplified all of this and said the armed groups are promoting the demonstrations. And that is not true. There can be some specific cases in which the armed groups were promoting some specific demonstration, uh, but the whole dynamics and the ways, different ways in which different armed groups try to use this opportunity to exercise their violence, to extend the territory they control, uh, is, is really, really complex and, and requires much more detailed thought than what we had uh, I've been hearing from the from the Duke administration. That's it's interesting. I I think that's that's totally on point because the simplification and the oversimplification of what's happening. Oh yes, this is all being provoked by urban, uh, you know, militias uh, connected to the ELN, FARC dissidences, and other other groups such as paramilitary groups such as the Clan del Golfo, and so on and so forth. And this plays, of course, into their. Um, well, into their politics of militarization and, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the what would you say? Militarization and not investment into social structures. And this is becoming very tiresome because the, the issues that created the paro are legitimate issues and that have been, you know, we're looking at, at six decades, five decades of these, these problems and, and, you know, I guess COVID, of course, exacerbated the issues and, and sent more people out onto the streets, the inequality, the lack of basic human rights, and so on. Of course, the desire for the peace process to be carried out rather than uh, slow-walked and strangled to its current situation, and and the killings, uh, seemingly unending killings of social and community leaders and ex guerrillas or rein, uh, reincorporating, reintegrating guerrillas who have signed the peace accords. So, I mean, Human Rights Watch has done some serious work on this. Uh, what, what is your response to the government about this oversimplification? I mean, the one of the biggest challenges with this government is that they really seem to believe their talking points. And that is a problem because, you know, many governments need to simplify the problems to be able to communicate them to people, to be able to sell them to their audience. But the problem is that these guys really believe what they're saying. They believe that, they seem to believe that the the reason why people were protesting is that the armed groups were promoting the demonstrations. They don't seem to be taking seriously the 
very uh, serious problems with inequality, with high level of poverty, with very poor social services in Colombia, very limited access to health, all of this amid a pandemic. And the same problem we see when it comes to uh, security policy. Very recently, President Duque was, um, has this new talking point about the symbols of uh, evil, <laughs> los símbolos del mal. And he says, we're going to kill or arrest the symbols of evil. And it, it sounds, you know, childish, uh, but it pretty much reflects his policy, his security policy. His security policy is almost based on the idea that the real problem in Colombia is, you know, 10, 20 people who are very mean, who want to profit from drugs and want to destroy Colombia. Mm. And he doesn't seem to understand, or at least that's what we see uh, in the government policies, that there are very, very deep structural issues, issues of governance in these um, remote places of Colombia that explain the violence that we are seeing these days. And his security policy has um, departs from a wrong diagnosis of the situation and therefore, unfortunately, has achieved very, very uh, little positive results. Mm. This, this uh, uh, you know, the symbols of evil, this is, a, as you say, it's childish, isn't it? But it's very much an image it, you, you can picture it and it and it would appeal to the the base of everything's bad i hear because of drugs and because of the guerrilla uh, and and that point you said that this government is convinced by what they are saying and what they are selling that's very troubling I mean, it means that there's no space for negotiation or no space for conversation if they believe you know that it makes me think of of tony blair back in the days of the iraq war when the prime minister said you know sort of uh, he was he believed that he was doing it because of a higher power you know it was, it was god that was guiding him on this and that that kind of uh, overzealous uh, rationalization is a concern Absolutely. Look, I've had many meetings with the Duke administration, including with the president himself, several times. I can say that the meetings were very long and very frustrating mm. because it's very, very hard to uh, convince this government, including the president, that um, they need to rethink their security policies. But they seem to be pretty much um, tacking a dogma mm. um, and willing to um, think of alternative options and I'm willing to realize that the empirical evidence, the reality we see in different parts of Colombia shows that the security forward policy is failing. And it's failing at a great cost for the lives for the lives of people in this parts of Colombia, mm. we are the President Duque is going to be the first president uh, in since Pastrana, um, who ends his term with a higher uh, rate of homicides than the one Colombia had when he took office. The number of massacres is twice the one he had when he took office. Force displacement is currently, a massive force displacement is currently at the highest level since prior to the peace process. Uh, massive confinement is at the highest level in many years. And all of these statistics, which are uncontroversial, are not sufficient to... Uh, convince him to change his his views and to rethink his policy. He's pretty much stuck in this dogma, as I was saying. This is amazing. I, I have to ask before we get into, so let's say, the massacres and so on. What you've you've had meetings with President Duque. He's one of the few presidents I uh, I've not met in in my <laughs> fifteen odd years here. Um, 
what what's he like i i have to ask because my listeners will be fascinated by this look he's a very nice guy he's very uh, conversational um he's he's he it's nice spending time with him i can say that for sure um the problem is that when we discuss the policy issues it's very hard to make him change of opinion he he's he's very very um rigorous about his talking points mm-hmm. and he almost never leaves his talking points and the ideas he already had prior to the meeting mm-hmm. um that is that is something i've seen in the meetings i've had with him and that is you know very frustrating because what's the point of a meeting if everyone's going to think exactly the same uh, when the meeting's over yeah it, it, it seems like a waste of time and does he let you talk because this is one thing i've heard is like once he's on his talking points he doesn't let anyone else talk so the meetings have normally been we give a presentation then he gives a presentation and then the meeting's over <laughs> <laughs> so so you he talks you talk he talks and it's as if you're having two different conversations exactly <laughs> that's, that's, that's my that's my experience um that's my experience with with the president of colombia have there been any other like presidents or or, or leaders that you've interviewed or or you've you've uh, conversed with who have behaved in the same manner I can't think of anyone who is so uh, clearly stuck on their talking points. Mm. Um, he's extremely, extremely rigorous in that. He he very rarely leaves his talking points. And that, I really can't think of anyone who does that. Um, most often our meetings with high-level officials in, in Latin America, but also in Europe and in the United States, involve some sort of dialogue mm. and the other part is willing to concede at least to concede some minor points at least to do them pro forma at least for the sake of the conversation mm. um, oftentimes we leave the meeting and government officials say yes we'll do we'll look into that we'll do something about that and we pretty much know that's not going to happen but that's part of the dialogue uh, in Colombia, it's very—it's been very hard to to have that type of engagement with the current uh, current administration. Unfortunately, so you, don't, you leave the you leave the meeting room, and they don't even say, "Oh, we'll look into this." Well, that's got to be very disheartening from your perspective. Uh, I, I don't even want to. Uh, let's let's move on slightly. It, I mean, really uh, amazing to 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 understand a little bit about the machinations of of what goes on behind closed doors that we don't see but you see now obviously then if he's got his talking points and we know and there are all these images of him dressing as a policeman in support of the police and ensuring that he's on side especially after revelations of this the police brutality and and so on there are court cases that have been uh, delayed and delayed again regarding the extra official killings and and the police brutality can you tell us what's going on with these court cases these processes Look, um, this is also interesting because the the president said there was going to be zero tolerance for police abuse, right? Um, So, you know, the same way he takes his talking points so seriously, I think we should take his talking points seriously as well. Uh, Unfortunately, we have not seen any, any of that. In practice, this zero tolerance policy has been pretty much, so far, a record of impunity. Um, we, I know personally some prosecutors who are trying their best to do their job, and and I think they have achieved some significant results. There are uh, a few police officers who have been indicted, a few who have been charged, 
it's not a fantastic record, but I think they are doing some efforts. But uh, one of the challenges they face is that in, in, many, in some cases, and we know this, for example, in the case of Santiago Murillo, um, a young man who was killed in the demonstration, his, his story is quite sad because he was not even participating of the demonstration. He was walking back home from his uh, girlfriend's house and he was killed by a police officer when he passed by a demonstration. Uh, and the hearing has been postponed three times because the police officer's lawyer comes up with all sorts of excuses. First, he said he didn't have time to review the file. Then he said he had a medical emergency, but he didn't provide any medical documents to, to prove that. So justice has pretty much been, is pretty much being delayed in, in this case in particular. And the answer to this should be pretty easy. The Procuraduría, the Inspector General's Office, has the power to call on authorities to investigate whether these efforts by the, by the lawyer are in good faith or are in bad faith and are um, um, an effort to delay the process. So I think that is something that, that should happen. Um, but it's also really worrying what's happening in the internal investigations by the police. The police is supposed to investigate its police officers and to remove from office any police officer that is engaged in abuses. And when the Paro Nacional uh, took place, they opened 231 disciplinary investigations uh, to investigate their own police officers. Well, we found out that a few months later, they have already closed 210 of these 230 investigations. So the vast majority of the cases have been closed uh, without any clear explanation as far as we know and without uh, punishing uh, the police officers involved. Well, that that's not positive at all. I mean, you've got 10. I mean, it's just if they closed it all, they're just hoping that and expecting us, uh, the general public, just to forget that this took place. You say the right things. There are 321 cases open. And then kind of just carefully and clandestinely, they've just closed these cases. So uh, Human Rights Watch yourself, I assume you're, you're following these up. You, are you putting pressure on the government to, to reveal some of the information? We're putting pressure on them to reveal the information, but also, most importantly, to reform this system. Mm -hmm. This is an opaque system. This is a system that lacks any independence. This is a system where a police officer investigates his fellow police officer. Um, and the record of this system is, I believe, perhaps unsurprisingly, a record of complete impunity. So we've been calling on the government to reform the system and create a real system of uh, internal disciplinary investigations that really holds those responsible to account. Unfortunately, so far, the government has not fulfilled that, uh, that recommendation. They uh, passed a law reforming the disciplinary system of the police, but the reforms are pretty much... Uh, pro forma. They are almost pretending they're carrying out a reform while the structural problems of this system remain the same. When we talk about the structural problems, it, it's, it's, it's a, a military outfit, uh, you know, the police force being under the auspices of the Ministry, ministry of Defense. This is not a, a social outfit. This is a is that Is that what you're getting at there? It's a military outfit. Um, Colombia is the only country in Latin America that has the police uh, under the Ministry of Defense. It's lack of accountability. It's lack of transparency. Um, it's, I think there are several structural problems uh, that need to be addressed. But so far, we've seen very, very few efforts to, 
to really carry out a serious police reform. What, what, what's stopping them from doing this? What's stopping them from saying, okay, we, ne- we need to get this out of the Ministry of Defense, we need to change the attitude? Because in all of the years I've been in Colombia, this seems to me that the police force is at their lowest you know, point. People do not trust the police. Mm-hmm. Mm, I think there are several issues. Um, first, I think there is some resistance by the police itself from being uh, reformed. Um, I think many police officers feel that if they are uh, transferred out of the Ministry of Defense, their their institution is somewhat demoted. Um, I think. Um, Shady police officers must be concerned as well as on on what would happen if there is better accountability. Mm. Um, And I think there is a whole lot of resistance to this idea that the institution itself needs to be reformed. Um, And that police uh, resistance has immediately... um, been supported by by President Duque. I think the president is um, is going on great lengths to ensure that he has the support of the police. As you mentioned, he even uh, dresses up as a police officer. He's done that several times. Um, so he's not willing to get into a fight with the institution or with key players in the institution. So he's only willing to reform the police to the extent that the police is willing to reform itself. Mm. And we are it's it's very unlikely that that the police is going to re- reform itself in a serious manner i think it, it it's uh it's a cause for concern i think you you sort of touched on it there a second they don't like the word and the terminology of a, a reform as you say it, it sounds like a demotion it sounds like they're being uh almost punished uh and of course mm-hmm. maybe we need to change the language it is i don't know an evolution of the police force i don't know how you put it but maybe we need to change <laughs> you know to kind of just say listen you are not being demoted you are not being pushed into the shadows your role now is different to what it was let's say in the pastrana years or the uribe years your role now is is beyond this uh i don't know it, it's a hard one isn't it i I, and and we look at what's going on in Colombia. We look at what's what's continuing, uh, and I try not to look every day because it's never good news. Um, we're into you know we've already had more than half a dozen massacres in 2022. Uh, as you said, the court processes for the this the police brutality and, and killings are being delayed. We have elections on the horizon, and it kind of feels like this: the government or the people, well, let's say the people associated with the government, are trying to finish up business before the elections. What what do you see happening in in these coming months before the elections? Look, l- let me just go back for a second to a point you just made about the police. Okay, I think an important message we should give to police and the police officers is. Reform is not just for the sake of protesters or for the sake of citizens in Colombia. It's for the sake of individual police officers. What we want is that every police officer has the knowledge, the training, and the capabilities necessary necessary to be able to engage in a demonstration without committing human rights abuses. Mm. We want to avoid the fact that police officers are being tried. We want to be able to prevent these abuses. Uh, Right now, what we have is a system where police officers um, seem to be unsuited, uh, I mean, ill-suited to to address the demonstrations, and this is what we have to change. And I I think that should be a key part of the the narrative in promoting this police reform. Mm. Now, you were asking me what... uh, what are we seeing ahead of the elections? I think um, the situation right now is very, very troubling in terms of violence in, in remote locations across the country. And it, that has to do with our immediate past in Colombia and with the immediate press, uh, future. The immediate past is a past of increasing deterioration of the 
situation of security in many remote locations of the country, which has to do with a failed uh, security policy and an even implementation, uneven implementation of the peace accord, and I think also the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm. And in the immediate future, we have the elections. And so many armed groups are preparing to do something that they've done for, for many years, that is to try to influence the outcome of the local elections in the territories they control. They're showing their teeth. They're showing how powerful they are because they want to make sure they're able to say, this guy is running for office, this guy is not running for office. This is something that occurs at a local level, mayors, uh, um, concejales, uh, also the um, lawmakers in the uh, peace um, circumscription and so on. And, and I think that is, is very worrying, and we're likely to see an increase in violence as we, as we approach the, the elections in March and then in May and June. So you've got the local ones in March uh, and then the, the national ones in May and June. The presidential yes. ones in May and June. Yes, so exactly. It's, it's a very serious year, big year uh, for Colombia. And I just, I mean, at the moment, you just can't predict anything. There's just, you know, there's all sorts of political games being played back and forth. It's uh, it, for those of us watching, of course, it's 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 a very troubling, and of course, very. Uh, I don't know. You try and establish a pattern, but you can't. I don't, I don't know. The elections on the horizon, the massacres taking place. As you say, the violence is likely to in, in, increase. Not, not very positive. <laughs> not very positive no, at all. Not very positive. <laughs> or, or as Colombians like to say, complejo. Complejo, complex. <laughs> complex is, uh, oh. I think, an, an understatement there. And, and where, <laughs> where, where, when we look at this as a whole, and we have to ask, and you wrote a very interesting paper uh, quite recently, where does Venezuela sit in all this? Because we've got millions of Venezuelans. Uh, there was the, the report was it by the Global Food Program or the, something uh, recently that says that, you know, Colombia, people in Colombia are suffering from extreme hunger. But the, of course, that's uh, points of the Venezuelan uh, migration to Colombia. Where do we where do we sit with with Venezuela next door? I mean, Venezuela is uh, also a crisis on top which, on top of another crisis. You have in Venezuela the crisis of lack of democracy. On top of that, the crisis of uh, you know a humanitarian crisis where many people are not able to access basic uh, food and medicine. Mm. On top of that, a migration crisis with more than 6 million uh, Venezuelans who have left the country, most of them to, to Colombia. And then on top of that, uh, probably less visible crisis, there is the crisis of the increasing presence and, and territorial control of armed groups in Venezuela. Mm. I, I always say that when Venezuelans are able to solve their lack of democracy, their economics, and so on, they will realize the country looks very similar to what Colombia looked maybe 20 years ago mm. in terms of control by armed groups, uh, or, or maybe 10 years ago in Colombia. Um, and that is a whole different problem for Venezuelans, a problem they are not uh, used to um, address and not used to, to think about and to, and to discuss. Um, obviously, all of this impacts the situation in Colombia. We have more than 1.8 million Venezuelans in, in the country. And I think um, if there's one thing, one uh, good legacy of President Duque in his administration is the fact that he passed the TPS, the Temporary Protection Status for Venezuelans. I think that is a smart move a humanitarian move and one for which he deserves praise. Um, so we have 1.8 million Venezuelans in Colombia. Uh, we also have a country, um, a border that is very uh, difficult to control. Uh, armed groups operate, most of them operate very freely on the Venezuelan side. So this adds a whole, you know, additional layer of, um, problems and complexities 
to the to the situation in Colombia, which is already in and of itself very worrying. I, I and I, I liked what you wrote, and I think we we are right to celebrate and applaud President Duque for his, you know, reaction to the Venezuela crisis, and as you say, the TPS, uh, and allowing Venezuelans, uh, you know, to 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 come to Colombia. And of course, there is such a a fluid relationship between the two countries. It's, it's so many Venezuelans are of Colombian descent, or of course have family, and so on and so forth. It feels feels natural, I think, to absorb, if not, it's difficult, of course, but to absorb 1.8 million people. There is a, mm -hmm. it's not like it's a completely different culture coming in, you know, Colombia, Venezuela, one and the same almost. But uh, when um, you wrote this paper and you said, you know, well done, Colombia, for this, but the effort needs to go further, what did you mean regarding the Venezuelans? Yes, there is a, a a challenge right now in the border with um, the Venezuelan walkers. Mm. Every day, hundreds of Venezuelans um, arrive in the Colombian border and then they walk in the roads, in the Colombian roads, towards Bogota or towards bigger cities in Colombia. And to anyone visiting this uh, road, The obvious question is, why are they walking? Why don't they have a bus? The Colombian government and the humanitarian agencies give them food on the way. There are several attention centers for them to have food, for them to sleep, for them to have access to the internet. But why don't we spend that money on a bus so they don't have to walk? For days, and this is not just about walking, uh, the fact that they're walking is also that they are exposed to child recruitment by armed groups, to uh, human trafficking, to all sorts of abuses, on top of the dangers of walking on, on Colombian roads uh, for days. Mm. Um, so we are trying to convince the government that there is no point in... in um, And not allowing these people to go into a bus. There are, seem to be some legal problems that need to be reformed. Uh, and that the money is better spent in buses, allowing them to take a bus, go to Bogota, and then many of them have families that can help uh, take care of them. Mm. Instead of doing these attention centers every, every kilometers or so in, in the roads. Yeah, it does, it does some, seem like a very logical decision to make a logical step is help the people arrive where they want to get to exactly. <laughs> rather than as you say recruitment of of young people to armed groups the dangers of being on the highway walking for days through situations which are inhumane the heat the cold the hunger carrying children and what little they can on their backs it's uh It's kind of horrific. I have seen this on, on highways in Santander and, of course, in other places. Now, final question here, and it just popped up in my head, and then I'll let you go. <laughs> But uh, our Minister for Defense here is Diego Molano, and he routinely comes up with uh, statements saying that, like, the paro and any problems or, let's say, I think it was the threats on the president's life and well-being have been connected to groups in Venezuela. Have you found anything to prove or disprove these points? Look, I think it's pretty much uh, yet another oversimplification of the Biden mm. administration. And, and I think, uh, unfortunately, the minister Molano is uh, one of the experts in oversimplifications. Um, <laughs> There are armed groups in Venezuela. The ELN is in Venezuela. The FARC, some partisans groups operate in Venezuela. Some of their commanders are in Venezuela. They organize meetings in Venezuela. All of that is true. Uh, but I don't know of any evidence that the PARO has been organized from Venezuela. Uh, much on the contrary, the um, UN um, top 
uh, official in Colombia, Carlos Ruiz Massieu, who is a representative of the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said it very clearly. He said, we have no evidence whatsoever of infiltration by foreigners or of foreign powers uh, being involved in the demonstrations. So I think instead of, um, you know, creating this narrative and uh, based on very, very weak evidence, it would be much better if the Minister of Defense tries to understand the real problems in Colombia and on the basis of that diagnosis comes up with security policies that are both uh, respectful of the human rights of people who are demonstrating and that are useful to protect the people in the um, remote areas of Colombia that are suffering so much these days. It's true, it's true. Well, I... Again, as you say, complejo, oversimplifications. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's it's it's, it's a challenging few months ahead of us here in Colombia, and I and, and I and I thank you, uh, Juan Papier, for your, for your insights into what's going on from the Human Rights Watch, you know, the NGO. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Will you be down in Colombia soon, doing some investigations? Hopefully, hopefully soon. I think there's. Uh Lots of work, unfortunately. Yeah, lots of work indeed. Thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking to Juan Papier, who's a senior investigator for um, the Americas. Uh, he's, of course, his special focus on Cuba and Colombia. We've talked about Colombia and Venezuela as well today. It's been, well, I hope I've informed you. I hope uh, myself and Juan have in, informed the listeners a little bit about some of the realities on the ground here in Colombia. It's important to get this information out there because obviously, you know, uh, there's all sorts of editorial lines and there's all sorts of budget restrictions for reporting uh, in-depth and long-form journalism from the region. So we try and get a little bit out here on on the podcast just to, to get beyond the, the filters that uh, that prevent us from reporting. Let me take this moment to say thank you for to Juan Papier for his time, and I wish you all the best in the future, and please stay safe. Thanks to you for having me. It's been a pleasure, um, and I hope you stay safe as well, and, and we'll be in touch. We will indeed. This has been episode 412 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I've been speaking to Juan Papier of uh, Human Rights Watch, Senior Investigator for the Americas. It's been a very informative episode. I know you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with more information and more stories about Colombia. Thank you again for listening, and goodbye. Bien.